This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to invite Pastor Sarah for a teaching. Thank you. All right, before we get into the teaching, two quick things. I wanted to just re-highlight what Joman was sharing about the Sunday school class. This is an incredible opportunity. So if you've ever felt like, oh, I wish I knew the scripture better. I wish I understood the story of scripture, how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament. What happened in between the two Testaments? Uh, what's next in the story? This class is for you. It's an eight-week class. We're not meeting on the holiday weekend, so it's going to go a little bit longer. But you should sign up. Come to the Next Steps bar, drop off a high card, email the hello account. Um, you should do this. It's going to be great. And actually, an RSVP would be really helpful because we're ordering books. So, second thing, Jason Lee, give us a wave. Jason Lee is our creative director. Jason Lee got engaged this past week. So, congrats, Jason. Jason and Eunice, they were a match made in heaven. We love them. We love you, Jason. Congratulations. Yep. All right. So today we are talking about friendship. I don't know uh, how many of you had imaginary friends as children. Anybody want to raise their hand on that one? I know my husband did. Yes, yeah, some of us had imaginary friends. I did not. And I think it's probably because when I was 16 months old, I got a sister. So I kind of had a built-in friend my whole life. But uh, both of my children had imaginary friends. Silas, who is our youngest, his were very short-lived. They stuck around for maybe a couple weeks, but they had amazing names. His, his imaginary friends were Treaty Tops, Lighty Hat, Candy Bell, Fences, and Wheel Monster. <laughs> so they stuck around a couple weeks. Noah, who was three and a half when we had Silas, had a whole cadre of imaginary friends that lived with us for over a year. They were like regular parts of our family. They also had some interesting names. Sarah, which is kind of funny. Amy Sarah, Sada, Sako, Baby Ia, and Trest. So these six friends were a regular part of our family life. And what's amazing about imaginary friends, a couple things. One, Noah would process, this is like how he processed everything that he was experiencing. So the week that he had to get a shot at the doctor, a couple days later, wouldn't you know it, Sako is off to the doctor to get a shot. And Noah is like coaching him, you know, yeah, they're going to rub your skin with this little alcohol thing, and then you'll just feel a little pinch, and then you'll get a sticker, you know, and he's kind of coaching him through. He's processing his experience with his imaginary friends. The other thing that was helpful about having imaginary friends is it gives us a glimpse into what Noah was experiencing, like what's going on in his little world. So the week that Silas was born, and again, Noah's three and a half, has enjoyed only child, you know, life for three and a half years. About a week after that, he told us, you know, mom and dad, did I ever tell you, Trust has seven brothers. Like, oh, Trust has seven brothers. Noah's little world was being overrun by brothers, <laughs> and we are seeing this phenomenon kind of make its way into Trest's life. Trest's world is overtaken by brothers. So it was very helpful to have these imaginary friends. It's interesting to notice how kids are wired for friendship. They make up friends when they don't have them. They just, they want friends, they're wired for it, they're good at it for the most part. Friendship is like a central part of childhood for most 
human beings. But we kind of lose that over time, don't we? The older we get, the harder it becomes to find, to make, and to maintain friendships. Maybe some of you know what that's like. Maybe you've experienced loneliness. I have. I've had, I can think of three times in my adult life, like seasons of loneliness, usually around transitions. So when I graduated from college, I went to college here in Providence, and I stayed, and all my friends went off to the far corners of the world. I was really lonely. When I had a baby, just to get out the door, I was lonely and isolated. And then even more recently, leaving a church community and a job where I had built years of friendships and social networks. To be honest, this season has been one where I've had to lean in pretty hard to being intentional about my friendships. I've been a little lonely. So this is, I know it's hard to talk about loneliness. We sometimes feel embarrassed to say we're lonely. It's a normal part of life. We need to talk about it. So I share those things to let you know I've been there. In the United States, people's personal friend networks have been steadily declining for the past 35 years. Vivek Murthy, who is the Surgeon General, has said many times in recent years that the most prevalent public health issue in our country is not cancer, it's not obesity, it's not diabetes, it is social isolation. Study after study has found, even after correcting for things like age, diet, and exercise, that social isolation and loneliness are linked to everything from an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, stroke, Alzheimer's, and even lower life expectancies. A recent Boston Globe article that many of you might have seen, it kind of made the rounds on Facebook, um, it just highlighted the particular challenges for middle-aged men in maintaining friendships. Some of the reasons for this are that men tend to withdraw from friendships in their 20s and 30s because first their friendships get edged out by work and then they get edged out by family. And so in their 40s and 50s, they look around and they're often quite lonely. Another reason for this is that male friendships are not very valued in our society. If you kind of think of a pecking order of what we value, we really value childhood and adolescent friendships Next, adult female friendships, and at the bottom of that list is adult male friendships. So men have some particular challenges in kind of overcoming those things. But across the board, for men and women, despite all the kind of ways we can stay connected online, you know, all the opportunities for interconnectedness, we are arguably more isolated than we've ever been, and it's literally killing us. How is that for a inspiring way to start a sermon? That is a little bit depressing. But this is the reality. This is why we celebrate Eastertide. This is why we need the resurrection. The tagline for our series is raising life in a culture of death. The resurrection, the resurrected life stands in contrast to the water that we swim in. And what I've just described this morning is some of that water. The water that we swim in is dying. It is isolated. Our cultural water is full of opportunities to connect, and yet we see very little examples of deep friendships. We are lacking in friendship. 
So why are we talking about friendship at all? Why does friendship make it onto the list of the Eastertide series? We talked about rest in a culture of busyness, wonder in a culture of cynicism. Why are we talking about friendship in a culture of isolation? Why is friendship or how is friendship connected to the resurrection? The reason that we're talking about friendship is that friendship is central to the heart of God. Throughout the narrative of scripture, you can find a very strong and beautiful thread of a theology of friendship, friendship with God and friendship with other people. We often don't think of it this way, but one of the reasons that God sent his son to live among us, die for us, and rise again is to teach us something about friendship. In the Old Testament, God initiates friendship with humanity. He talks about talking to Moses face to face as with a friend. Abraham is called God's friend. But it is Jesus who reveals the fullness and the richness of this friendship when he dies on the cross to preserve God's friendship with humanity. On the night before he died, thinking about what's to come, he's about to die, then he's going to rise again, and he's going to leave physically, like his body is going to ascend. Jesus tells his disciples, you are no longer my servants, you are my friends. This is the passage that Joman read for us. And he says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then the very next day, he goes on to do that. He does that very thing. He lays down his life and demonstrates that love. Jesus is the prototype for friendship. By by his death, he demonstrates what real friendship is like. This is a friendship that is foreign to the world, but is central to the heart of God. And this is a friendship that Jesus also tells us is possible for us. We can be this kind of friend to other people. When Jesus rose from the dead and when God poured out his spirit on the church, he created one new humanity who lives in resurrection life, resurrection power, and carries that life into a broken world. And when we submit ourselves to that reality, we allow the Holy Spirit to shape us, we begin to look like our Father and we live differently than the world around us. And that's what this series is all about. One way that we live differently is we begin to live out this friendship that Jesus demonstrated for us. And this is a breath of fresh air in a dying, isolated world. That's why we're talking about friendship this morning. Little side note, if you're here this morning and what I've just shared, to, you know, if, if what I've just shared about God's friendship with humanity, if that's news to you, you've never heard that story before, or you've never accepted the gift of God's friendship, I just want to say welcome. I'm glad you're here. And I hope that there's something in this message that stirs your heart this morning. I hope you'd be happy to talk. God loves you, and he's offering his friendship to you. Be happy to talk with you afterwards if that's you. So today, we're talking about resurrection friendship. This is a term that Eugene Peterson coined that I think is really helpful, and I want to use that term today to distinguish this kind of friendship from what we've become accustomed to. There's something different 
about this kind of friendship. So I'm going to call it resurrection friendship. Resurrection friendship is the friendship that we were designed for. It's the friendship that Jesus models for us. And it's the friendship that his death and resurrection unleash on the world. And so I want to talk about what is this friendship like? There's a lot of things that I could talk about. There's probably a hundred things I could say, including like it's obvious that it's self-denying, it's sacrificial. I'm only going to pick three things. And these are three things that I actually believe are specific words for us as a community. Three ways that I think God wants to speak to us. So I'm going to talk about the fact that resurrection friendship is purposeful, it's intimate, and it's reconciling. Those are the three things we're going to talk about. I want to give a little tiny disclaimer right here. And this is for any parents who have kept kids in the service today. Just wanted to give you a heads up that some of the topics that I'm going to touch on are a little bit more mature. So when we get to the intimacy part, you might imagine where we'll go with that. And then with the reconciliation, there's a story that I'm going to tell. It's a beautiful story, but it's a little bit heavy. So just wanted to give a heads up to any parents who kept kids in. All right. That's all the lead up to the teaching. Here we go. So the first characteristic of resurrection friendship is that it is purposeful. C.S. Lewis said this. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Friendship must be about something. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Resurrection friendship is about sharing a purpose that is greater than ourselves. The friendship that we're familiar with, that we see around us in the world, is primarily concerned with the benefits of the friendship to the individuals involved in the friendship. That's the primary concern, and that's good, right? That's totally fine. It's about mutual enjoyment, companionship, comfort. That's a great thing. But there's something so powerful that happens when a group of friends commits themselves to a greater purpose. Maybe some of you have experienced that. You know what I'm talking about. One of the great joys of my life is that actually this has been true for me, both in my work with InterVarsity and my work here at Sanctuary, that as I'm on this journey of mission, I've been surrounded by friends. And I've actually formed friendships as I've been on this journey. It's a powerful thing. And that's what Jesus is describing in the passage that Joman read in John 15. He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus is preparing for his death, resurrection, and ascension. And he's entrusting a sacred project, his father's business, to this little band of friends. So any, any kind of servant can execute a task. Only friends can share the vision of that project and execute it as if it were their own. And so this group of friends, empowered by the Spirit, these disciples, they devoted their lives to one another and to the purpose of continuing the work that Jesus began. And they 
with God's help, by God's spirit, changed the face of human history, this little band of friends. And the critical thing to note about the disciples is they didn't do this by forming some cold, lifeless organization. They did it in the context of friendship. In Acts 2, we read that the early church met in each other's home, broke bread together. They shared their possessions. Throughout the epistles in the New Testament, we hear Paul's affection for the people that he is partnering with. One of my favorite lines that kind of perfectly describes resurrection friendship is something he wrote to the church at Thessalonica. He said, reflecting on a past visit with them, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. It's a beautiful picture of resurrection friendship. At the very beginning of the church, the mission of God was entrusted to resurrection friends. And then we see that throughout the history of the church. One of the most moving examples in history is something that's known as the Clapham sect. That sounds like maybe that's like a cult or something to me. It sounds kind of weird. Clapham is a neighborhood in London where these people lived. And the Clapham sect, this was in the late 1700s, early 1800s, the Clapham sect was a group of friends from that neighborhood that committed themselves to one another. And then out of their deep commitment for Jesus, they committed themselves to a number of social projects. If you ever want to be inspired, just a little side note, ask Pastor Andrew about the Clapham sect. He has many thoughts, many beautiful thoughts. It would be a fascinating uh, conversation. Uh, but the most famous member of this group was William Wilberforce. Many of you know that name. He led abolitionist movements in London for 20 years before being really the lead voice in the dismantling of the slave trade throughout the British Empire. What we don't really know or talk about is that one of the reasons he was able to do that was he had this group of friends surrounding him, supporting him, and in it with him. He was able to do this because of his resurrection friends. One writer described this group this way. A unique feature of the Clapham sect was the desire to live with one another or in proximity to each other. They were always welcome in each other's homes. In spite of the Clapham sect's many crusades and projects, life in many ways was centered around their homes with family and friendships as priorities. This was undoubtedly one of the group's important sources of vitality. The Clapham sect loved each other deeply. They prayed together, they studied scripture together, and they encouraged each other, and especially encouraged William Wilberforce in the mission that God had given him. And God used this group of resurrection friends to change the face of the British Empire. That is power. So as I look around our church today, I, it's true, what I'm about to say. I can imagine different groups of you. I can imagine future generations talking about you guys that way. There are groups of resurrection friends in this community that I believe God has entrusted with sacred projects. So one group that we kind of talked about a little bit just a minute ago, the Monday night home group. You guys are resurrection friends. The way you love each other literally buying homes near each other because you love each other so much. But your friendship isn't this insular thing that's just about your own enjoyment. 
you actually have been given a greater purpose. You want to see your neighborhood reached with the good news of Jesus. And so some of you are planning and preparing to plant a church together. It's incredible. The trick for you, I think, will be to continue to ask God to use your love for each other to be the fuel that opens up your heart to love people you haven't met yet. That that would be the fuel that would for, like, further you in mission. You need to pray against turning inward. You love each other so well. Jesus, would that love be the fuel that pushes us outward to people we don't know? I am so excited that that seed, that kingdom seed of an east side church plant has been given to a group of friends because we have seen what happens when sacred projects are entrusted to bands of friends. The world is never the same. So I can't wait to see what happens. And that's not the only one. There are other stories. Resurrection friendship is about sharing in a purpose that is greater than ourselves. So a couple questions. Have you ever thought about who are your resurrection friends? Or if you are part of a Christian community, you're part of a home group, do you know what your purpose is? Why has God made you friends with each other? What is the kingdom dream that he wants to seed into your group? Do you ever talk about that? What conversations do you need to have this week to ask God together, what do you want to do with us? And secondly, if you're lonely and looking for friendship, maybe a way to start is to serve. Get involved in a kingdom project and look around and see whose hearts God is going to knit to yours. Resurrection friendship has a purpose that is greater than the friendship itself. So that's the first characteristic. The second characteristic of resurrection friendship is that it is intimate. <clears throat> and friends, this one, if we can get this one right, we have the chance to speak prophetically to a world that has very little imagination in this area. So we see examples of this kind of intimate friendship throughout scripture. David and Jonathan, who loved each other very deeply. Ruth and Naomi, who committed their lives to one another. Jesus, a single man who had intimate, close friendships with both men and women, notably John, and then the trio of siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, had intimate friendships. But when we hear examples of those friendships, sometimes we start to wonder, were they really just friends? Or was something more going on? We start to get skeptical about that. Why do we do that? Why do those kind of questions creep into our mind? Is it possible that one of the reasons that happens is that we have a profound lack of imagination about intimate relationships that are not sexual? This is something I want to talk about. So if you will indulge me for a moment, I'd like to take you down a train of thought. What is intimacy from the world's perspective? When I say that word, what comes to mind? And I tried to draw this out. Some of you know that I really like to depict things visually. It's not a chart this time, but it's circles. So I'm going to put up what I think is the 21st century Western cultural narrative as it relates to intimacy. It is 
a blue circle located concentrically within a slightly bigger yellow circle named sex. In the world, there is some awareness of sex that is not intimate, but there is very little awareness or imagination about intimacy that is not sexual. Where is intimacy located? It's located in sex. That is the story and the narrative that we are told. Now, I think the Christian culture has attempted to respond to this, and this is how I think this looks. So our response is more like a Venn diagram. We pull these two things apart, and we say, no, they're not the same. We have this, what color? Yellow circle that is sex. We have a separate blue circle that is intimacy, and they overlap in this green area that we call marriage. Now here's the thing, we could talk all day in the church about that green overlapping area. We love that one. We love to talk about marriage. We also have a lot to say about that yellow circle. We have a lot to say about sex outside of intimacy, sex outside of marriage, hookup culture. We could go on and on about everything in that circle. And then on the blue circle, deafening silence. Except when we're trying to help dating couples stay pure. Then we have a little bit to say about, oh, there's other ways to be intimate than to sleep together. But beyond that, we've got nothing. And so what happens is that we and the world, we both are suffering from a lack of imagination about intimacy that is not sexual, that there really isn't anything by way of intimacy outside of sex. This is the same lack of imagination that the world has, and we are just copying that, okay? And I think that this comes from a very similar idolatry. So I'm just gonna keep going, so you, hopefully you're following me. Um, the world idolizes sex, we're aware of that. The church, we think we're correcting that when we idolize marriage. But it's a very similar idolatry. The world idolizes sex, we idolize marriage. And what that means is that neither of us has anything very interesting or hopeful or creative or anything that sounds like good news to say about intimacy to anyone who's not having sex. Okay, we have a problem. And then we hear stories about how the world is socially isolated and it's killing us and we scratch our heads and try to figure out why. But in subtle and not so subtle ways, we have communicated that sex and marriage have a monopoly on intimacy. And that is a lie. That is a lie that is robbing us from the full joy of resurrection friendship. And that lie has major implications on the life of our church. So for example, how are single people supposed to thrive, whether you're single by circumstance or by calling? How are you supposed to thrive in a resurrection community if your married counterparts, their allegiance to Jesus is compromised by their allegiance to their nuclear family that you don't have access to? How are you supposed to thrive? Maybe some of you have felt this before, and I'm sorry. As a married person, I'm sorry. 
How are men and women who are not married to each other, heterosexual men and women, I'll qualify it, how are they supposed to thrive in meaningful partnerships and friendships when we have a lack of imagination about intimacy that is not sexual and an overactive imagination about sexual intimacy around every corner? How are we supposed to see men and women serving side by side together when that is kind of the post narrative in our minds? And how are sexual minorities supposed to thrive in this community given everything I've just said? How are they going to thrive? Now here's an important caveat, I need to put this in here. What I am not trying to communicate is license for unwise decisions or a disregard for legitimate temptation and sin or appropriate boundaries to guard against those things. Believe me, I have thought about this for hours. <laughs> so if you wanna talk about that, I'd be happy to talk about that. But what I am saying is that in the absence of legitimate temptation and sin and within the boundaries of wisdom that takes into account the community, there is a whole lot more freedom and joy available to us in friendship than we currently know. That's what I want us to believe, is that our friendships are scratching the surface and there is more for us. So what do we do? Two things. One, if we want to experience this kind of intimacy, these kind of resurrection friendships, we need to root ourselves in a better narrative. And so I'm going to attempt to share what I think is a gospel narrative as it relates to intimacy. The story of God tells us that human beings were designed for intimacy. We were wired for this and we were made for this. And sex is one piece of that intimacy, but it is by no means the only piece. And it's not even the best piece. And that's like something we don't even understand. The good news is that the intimacy we were designed for is so much more than that. It doesn't just fill up that little sliver, it completely overwhelms that whole side of the diagram. And one way that we know this is that Jesus tells us there will not be any marriage in heaven. That kind of blows our minds sometimes, but in Matthew 22, he's being tested by some Jewish leaders who ask him, well, what about this hypothetical woman who's been married seven times because her husbands keep dying? What about that? Who is she going to be married to in heaven? And Jesus says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. There is no marriage in heaven. But if we understand heaven to be good, then we have to understand that we will not be lacking for into saying is that, and so the implication of that, what Jesus is saying, is that the intimacy we experience in marriage, including sexual intimacy, is only a hint of the true intimacy we were designed for, and only a fraction of the intimacy that we are capable of. And if that is true, then we are missing out if all we ever talk about is that little green area. We are missing out. So we need to root ourselves in a better narrative. And then the second thing is, we need to act as if this narrative were true if we want to experience this kind of intimacy. And so what would this look like? So married couples, I wanna to speak to you for a minute. 
I want you to think back to the last time you had people around your dinner table. And I want you to ask yourself the question, did they come two by two? Did they come in pairs? Or did they come in ones and threes and sixes and twos and fours? Who gets invited to your dinner table and why? Second, this is for all of us really, but I think especially for single folks or for people who feel lonely. What is your picture of friendship? Is your picture of friendship big enough to include people that are older than you, people that are younger than you, people that come with little people attached who are sometimes really annoying, and I say that as a mom, people who come with significant others attached? Is your picture of friendship big enough for those kind of categories? Who strikes you as a good candidate for friendship and why? And in any of these scenarios, we need to ask ourselves, what are the barriers? What is holding us back? Is it fear? Is it our preference? Is it our prejudice? Is it our discomfort? Is it the logistics of scheduling dates with families? I know that's hard, and I'm sorry about that, you know? Is it there's different ways in, in marriages that we get jealous? We need to be honest about this stuff, guys. What holds us back? from intimate friendships. Resurrection friendships are intimate. When we get this right as a community, we will be able to speak prophetically to a world that is dying because it is isolated. So, resurrection friendships are purposeful, they are intimate, and then lastly, resurrection friendships are reconciling. So, in other words, resurrection friendships resolve conflict. Any real relationship will involve seasons of conflict. Resurrection friendships are not guaranteed to be conflict-free, but we have a radically different approach to what to do when there is conflict. What is the cultural water that we swim in as related to conflict? I think it's that conflict kills friendships, right? Greg and I have experienced this firsthand. We've watched some friends, who, two couples who were friends, their neighbors, sink into a bitter feud that began with just a series of neighborly conflicts. French, uh, conflict kills friendships in this world. But the beauty of the gospel is we know someone who can raise dead things to life. And so when I was in my 20s, I had the best picture of this that I've ever seen in my life, and it has changed how I thought about this. In my 20s, I got to go to Rwanda a handful of times, and all the times that I was there, I had the opportunity to meet this man, work, work alongside him, and learn from him. His name is Antoine Rutiasire. He's a pastor, and he sat on the National Commission for Reconciliation in Rwanda. If you are unfamiliar with Rwandan history, in 1994, there was a genocide that killed nearly a million people of a minority ethnic group. And one of the particular horrors of this genocide is that the violence wasn't carried out by the state. It was instigated by a bunch of propaganda and a particular radio station, blah, blah, blah. It was carried out by individuals, by ordinary citizens, neighbors killing neighbors, friends killing friends, in some cases, husbands killing wives. And so in the aftermath, how do you reconcile an entire nation 
where there are hundreds of thousands of victims and hundreds of thousands of perpetrators. The jails were overrun in the aftermath of the genocide. How do you reconcile a nation? And this is what Antoine had devoted his life's work to. Antoine is a Tutsi, which is the minority ethnic group. And he had a resurrection friend named Paul, who was a Hutu from the other group, who was also a pastor. And the two of them, they would hook up a sound system on top of a white van, drive around into a random village, get out a microphone, and start preaching the gospel of reconciliation. And this is the message that Antoine would share. He would say, when we talk about reconciliation and we look at the cross, the cross has two arms for a reason. One arm is for the victim, and the other arm is for the perpetrator. When victim and perpetrator meet at the cross, the perpetrator sins are crucified, and the victim's wounds are crucified. And Jesus takes all of that brokenness into his body, onto himself, and he puts it to death and he dies. And then when he rises again, the relationship is resurrected to. That was the message that Antoine would preach, and he would invite widows and orphans from the genocide and widows and orphans, in quotes from people who were in prison, to become family for each other, and they would say yes. This is the power of the gospel to resurrect dead things to life. And the genocide in 94 was not the first instance of violence against Tutsis in the 60s, Antoine's father was murdered in front of him. He was five years old, and he witnessed his father's murder. Years later, after he had become a Christian and done all this work internally to forgive these people, a woman showed up in his office one day, and she said, my family, my father, my brothers were the one who orchestrated and carried out your father's death, and I'm here to ask for your forgiveness. And Antoine said the only way he can describe what happens when someone comes ready to repent and someone comes ready to forgive is magnetism. They embraced, they wept, and she has been like family to him ever since. That is the power of the gospel to resurrect dead things to life. So when I look around and I see friendships that die because someone parked their truck in the wrong place, and someone's music was too loud, and someone disagreed with someone else's lifestyle, I, it breaks my heart that our world does not know the power of the gospel to resurrect dead things to life. And so, friends, how will the world know that that power exists unless we demonstrate it in our resurrection friendships? If we allow conflict that I'm gonna guess the conflict we have in this community doesn't have to do with people murdering each other's fathers. If we are gonna allow lesser conflicts than that to kill our relationships, how will the world know that Jesus can raise dead things to life? Some of you in this room right now are feeling aware that you have relationships in your life that have died because of conflict. And I want you to listen to that. That's the voice of the Holy Spirit, that is conviction. We cannot allow conflict to kill friendships. So what do we do? There are two ingredients to reconciliation. This is really important. We often don't think about it, but it's really important. Repentance and forgiveness. We need both for a relationship to be reconciled. 
If we have been wronged, if we are the one who has been sinned against, we are commanded to forgive whether or not there is repentance. We are commanded to keep forgiving. But we are also instructed in Matthew 18, this passage um, is our guide. I'm not going to go through it. I'll tell you what it says, but write this down and look it up if you have never read this before. We are instructed when we have been wronged and someone has sinned against us not to wait for them to come and apologize to us, but to bring our wound to them and give them the chance to repent. That is love. We give them the chance to repent. If they don't hear us, then we bring in a church leader, pastor, elder, home group leader, um, etc. A couple of caveats about that. If going to the person who wounded you puts you in danger, the strategy probably changes and you should get some wise counsel on that. Don't be unwise. So that's caveat number one. Caveat number two. We often like get worried about, but if I keep forgiving, does that make me a doormat, right? If I keep forgiving and there's no repentance. Here's the thing. Reconciliation involves two things, forgiveness and repentance. If there is forgiveness, but there is no repentance, the relationship is still broken. And so establishing healthy boundaries may be wise. The relationship will not be completely mended. The only thing we have control over is forgiveness, which doesn't actually heal the other person. It heals us. So that's just important to remember. So um, just a couple tips about conflict resolution. If you are talking to a third party about a wrong that has been done to you, and this is specifically within the church, and you haven't told them yet, you haven't gone to them, or you're not planning to in short order, you are probably in the wrong. When your wound turns into gossip, you are in the wrong. If the best apology you can muster is, I'm sorry if I offended you, you're probably in the wrong. And if your way of like bringing your wound to your brother is to text them all the things you've forgiven them from, you're probably in the wrong. So I just want to challenge you on something. We don't talk about this a lot, but scripture is clear that when we come to the communion table, if we have unreconciled conflict with someone in the room, we should not take communion. And so I actually just want to challenge you guys before next time we come to the communion table, if there's someone in this community that you are not reconciled with, I want to encourage you to do that. If you need to repent of something, go do that. If you need to bring a wound to someone and say, hey, you sinned against me and I've been holding this in my heart and I haven't given you the chance to repent, you need to do that. If you need help with that, I'd be happy to help you. Pastor Andrew will be back on Wednesday. Adam and Lonnie, I'm sure, would be available to help, though I did not ask them. <laughs> so... Friends, um, we need to reconcile conflict so that the world would know that Jesus is alive and raises dead things to life. In conclusion, Jesus died so that we could experience resurrection friendship. And the world desperately needs this friendship. At Easter Tide, we reflect on our call to partner with God in the renewal of all things raising life in a culture of death. And so I just want to ask you to reflect as we sing, what is one thing from this message, something about the purpose of resurrection friendships, the intimacy, 
or the reconciliation? Is there one thing that is striking you today? And what's the thing that you're going to do about it this week? Do you need to have an intentional conversation with your home group about your purpose? Is there someone that God has put on your heart to initiate friendship with or to invite over for dinner? Is there someone you need to be reconciled with? What could God do with this community of resurrection friends if we allowed his life to infuse us and to raise us to life so that we would be pictures of his love? And lastly, if you want this friendship with God, know that Jesus died to make you friends with God. That all, he, all he's done is free, and all you have to do is to say yes. And so if you want to begin a relationship with Jesus today, as we sing, there will be people over here who'd be happy to pray for you. And if anything that I have shared this morning has stirred something that you want prayer for, they'd also be happy to pray for you. If you need help forgiving someone, if you need courage, if you are lonely, go get prayer. They would love to pray with you. So let me pray for us. Jesus, you are such a good friend. We don't even know how to articulate that. But Lord, uh, your life is at work in us. Would you make us aware of your work? Would you raise us to new life that we would demonstrate to the world a kind of friendship that they are, we are longing for and desperate for? Jesus, would Sanctuary Church be known as people who love deeply, who share sorrows and joys and all of life together, whose friendships are not insular but are about a greater purpose? whose friendships do not die when there is conflict but are raised to life. Jesus, we love you. Would you pour out your spirit on us? Make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.